Hey everyone, this is Alex Kelly with Furloughed Film Talks, back with another exciting episode today. Uh, we have our interviews with the director, uh, directors of Los Otros and Cannonball, so we're excited to uh, show you guys those interviews today. Uh, we are ex really excited about these next couple days. We're going to go see a couple movies in our Cinemark West Plano on Friday. They just announced those that theater will be open this Friday, as well as two other in the DFW area. So really excited to uh, report back our experience of that. Probably going to go check out a double feature of uh, Space Jam and Matrix on Friday. So super, super excited about that. And uh, also the Oscars got uh, delayed. So we'll, we'll probably talk about that over the weekend. But first, here is our interview with Monica Pendergrass and Eric Baldetti, the directors of Los Otros, which is available at the Dead Center Film Festival. Thank you. So we are now joined by the directors of a new short film that is uh, just at Dead Center Film Festival. Go check it out, deadcenterfilm.org. Uh, it is Monica Pendergrass and Eric Baldetti. Thank you guys for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, excited to be here. Thank you. <laughs> what you guys been up to these uh, last couple months? It's been crazy throughout the world. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> definitely crazy. Uh, we work in a lot of commercials, and um, so that's kind of been down lately. So we've just been working on smaller projects, film projects for other people, that sort of thing. What's the experience like been having this, you know, short film at Dead Center, you know, a full, fully virtual uh, film festival? Um, I'm still kind of getting used to the concept of it. Um, so far, there's been one other festival we were at that was all online. And to be honest, I, I feel bad. I haven't totally uh, checked it out <laughs> fully. <laughs> um, so I'm not sure how, how well it works. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of, it, you know, uh, disheartening a little bit because we yeah. were like, oh, we want to go meet all these people. And we had a really great time at the Sedona Festival, um, which was right before all of this happened. Okay. So it's kind of like a bit of a letdown, but, um, you know, it's still exciting. I mean, we were able to at least catch a bunch of films, you know, for Brooklyn yes. for this. And I mean, it's kind of a plus, I guess, because when you're at a festival, you can kind of only catch so many. So. Yeah, there's so much you know available right now at and at the film festival. But Los Otros, we we checked it out the other day, and it is powerful. It's it's a really well done short film. And so, kind of what was like the impetus? Like what what kind of led you guys down the road of making this short film? Um, well, for me, it was that I um, I come across this article about um, this organization called Otros Streets and Asion. Uh, they're based in Mexico City, and um, they had started as an art project, essentially. A researcher had come around and wanted to know the experiences of people who had returned to Mexico, which nobody had really asked that question, like, what happened after? Um, and it's a fascinating book, if anybody ever goes out there and looks for it. It's really great. It's a multitude of different stories. What is um, the name of it again? Uh, it's from the organization uh, Otros Dreams and Nación. Okay. So the book itself is called Otros Dreams, I believe. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I read that and I thought it was really amazing because it, um, you know, I, I didn't really think about what happens. I think, you know, we hear a lot of the stories of um, what it's like before deportation, um, what it's like, you know, uh, being separated, but not really what it's like to integrate into a society that you're not really a part of. Um, 
And for a lot of them, it was either like facing, you know, harassment from other Mexicans, um, people like Mexicans thinking like you're coming and taking our jobs now because you can speak English and that sort of a thing. Um, what? Having trouble finding jobs or just having trouble navigating the, um, the, the paperwork. Um, so all of that I thought was really fascinating. We reached out to the organization and just asked if they would like to collaborate and if any people were interested um, in being Spotlight. And then, I mean, I guess you could talk about like how we chose the three people for the film. Yeah, I mean, the process was really interesting. Um, I mean, just to add on to what Monica said first, that I thought it was really important to find a way of portraying uh, people who have been uh, deported in a way that wasn't purely than as victims, even though they clearly have gone through um, a really horrible experience that they should not have had to go through, um, and they are very much victims, I think it's important to, we just felt like in the narrative typically focuses on, on how devastated their life is, and we wanted to give some sense of dignity to who these people are and their resilience, despite all of these arbitrary, awful things that have happened to them. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, the process for you know finding the, our candidates, I mean, we were just trying to create a, a very quick, broad sense of all the different types of stories out there. So it was a bit of a struggle trying to find people who represented very different aspects of this one common experience, but all the different ways that it imp impacts people. Well, that's, I think what it does really well is, you know, it points out different parts of the discussion that a lot of people don't know about. And I think that's when I first saw the trailer, I was really interested in it because of kind of what Monica said. It's, you always think about what happens when they're arrested or they're here in the United States, but you never think about what happens when they're back in Mexico. And so it's, it's really interesting seeing that side of the system in a way, but um, also like, I think it was uh, Freddie. Freddie can't even go back and see his kids. I had no clue that there was now, there was a policy where you couldn't get a visa for five to 20 years to go back and see his kids. What's the best way of, of you know, fixing that or reforming that? Or is there a way to do that in a sense? Because I think that's one of those discussions that needs to be had. Yeah, well, that's definitely one of the uh, biggest issues, at least. Um, there are a lot of people who are working towards like uh, new laws that would change that where it wouldn't be such like a big penalty. Um, but as of right now, nothing's really going through. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, one of the biggest ironies of everything is that all this stuff is fixable, you know? Yeah, it's, and all of this stuff is recent too. Yeah. These aren't like laws that have been in place for 60 years or anything. These are things that have like especially happened in the 90s, um, okay. you know, with immigration reform under Bill Clinton. So a lot of these things... Um, are problems that go on both sides of the political spectrum, too, you know. That it definitely are, does, yeah. And it didn't help that, you know, the border is completely militarized as a result of, uh, you know, a trillion dollar wars in multiple countries. So, yeah, yeah I mean, you've had it under... Bush, Clinton, Obama. I mean, Obama is some of the worst. Like, you know. Oh yeah, he definitely deported a lot of people. Yeah, and um, <laughs> but there's just no discussion, which is insane. Yeah, that's, that, that's the worst part about all of it. But yeah. I think that was the great thing about this short film is it wasn't focused solely on oh the U.S. and these different administrations have screwed this up. It was solely focused on here are the people <laughs> affected by what's happened and their stories and how they've grown from it. Yeah, your uh, kind of line with this was very much like focus on the character and like 
the branch of effects across families and communities. Is that the exact direction you guys had from the beginning? Um, yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, I think it definitely shifted over time as we were making it and we realized what types of stories we had access to um, and how much access to people's lives we would get. Um, but we definitely wanted to focus on the personal side of it because, I mean, at the end of the day, that feels the most honest is what this particular individual went through. You know, um, to dive into all of the politics of it would have been overwhelming and complicated and it could have been preachy or condescending to the audience. And at the end of the day, we're all human beings, you know, living under various governments, um, but we all share that common humanity. And so we wanted to just focus on that and, you know. Um, yeah, and especially, you know, I'm from Texas as well, I'm from a small town in Texas. And in Texas. I'm, uh, Seguin, it's near San Antonio, yeah. very, um, but I have family in your area, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I have a lot of conservative family members and they're very well-meaning and well-intentioned and very kind people. And I, I'm always just trying to find a way to kind of bridge gaps that are like these political divides. And I feel like human stories are the best way to do that because as soon as you get into the politics of it, it gets, you know, nasty back and forth. So, yeah, I mean, that was one of the reasons also why we really wanted to have a veteran story because I felt like that was something that, everybody could agree on that, you know, if you're serving our country, if you're helping our country, like you are, you're taking that initiative and you're saying you want to be a part of this society. Mm -hmm. So And protect it, put your life on the line for it, you know? Um, yeah, that's something we, you know, definitely mentioned is that if, if that is true, I'm, I'm not doubting this is true at all, but if it's true that recruiters are misleading recruits, you literally, the situation is literally you have recruiters lying to people and then sending them to War possible zones. death yeah. On, yeah. Uh, on a lie. that Unconscionable. And, and like, this is something that I, I had asked him and I, I wanted to ask y'all. With that, you guys threw up the stats of um, you know, how many are active duty who are undocumented, undocumented immigrants and how many have been deported. Is it, are there stats kept for undocumented immigrants who are sent over to war zones and end up dying for the U.S.? Because that's uh, something that should be pretty well known. Yeah, as far as we know, I don't believe so. Um, you know, we know one of the uh, founders of an organization in Tijuana that works specifically with veterans uh, coming across the border because mm -hmm. Tijuana is a prime zone where mm -hmm. Veterans will go mainly because they're still able to see their family through the, the, the fence. Yeah. There's like a weekly Sunday prayer meeting that they do at the fence there. Um, but even we had asked him, like we were trying to find numbers and, and, and facts about it. And he was like, they don't keep that. that even if they did, they wouldn't give it to you. There's no yeah, way. exactly. Um, but there was, you know, a really interesting New York Times article that I had read about, um, you know, what happens to a lot of veterans when they go back to Mexico, which is that they're essentially targeted by cartels because mm -hmm. of the skill set that they have. Um, so it's kind of a very strange thing, but it's essentially that the American military is training their own enemies in a way because these veterans who go back to Mexico don't get much of a choice when it comes to dealing with the cartel. So yeah, and that's such an easy thing to fix, like. All you have to do in that scenario is say, hey, if you're an undocumented immigrant and you're going to serve our country, automatic citizenship like that. Yeah, it's not even. And I think that's the smartest part about having that in 
and you guys kind of said this, having it in the short film is you wanted to kind of stay away from the political side of it. But for people who are conservatives, you can legitimately look at them and say like, I know you love veterans. Here are people who want to come over for a better life and are going to serve your country there, the country they want, like they deserve citizenship. And that puts those types of people in a really tough spot of trying to wiggle their way out of that. Was that, I mean, did you have that idea of wanting that story in there from the beginning or was it, you kind of found this guy and it was, you know. Well, yeah, when we learned about that fact that there were so many veterans, we were like, we have to find a way to make sure there, there's a veteran of some kind representing that experience because it is just absolutely unconscionable and outrageous that that continues to go on. Yeah. So that was definitely part of our process. And it was definitely hard finding somebody, to be honest. We reached out to so many different people, organizations, and they'd be like, oh, try this person. Um, But every person that we spoke to um, felt uncomfortable. Either they had committed a crime, and that was one of the reasons why they had been deported, or um, they were dealing with a lot of PTSD and had like domestic violence issues. So it was a lot of things that they personally just didn't want to be on camera. Yeah. So, so to give a little more context to what Monica is saying, um, a lot of these pr- cases where they're deported, they're kind of com- complicated for many reasons. One of them being that these um, often veterans suffer, as, as you know, from PTSD. And, you know, when you have severe PTSD, uh, you know, you are given all kinds of medication to deal with it. You suffer from depression, you have all these things. So it creates a person when they come back into domestic life who's a lot more prone to um, some kind of crime, whether they get addicted to uh, serious drugs like heroin, you know, when they're cut off of. And so then the odds of them committing a crime while being a, a, you know, in the United States, and it's like become much, much higher. So it's a lot easier for them to be like, well, you know, we created this, you know, the the army instills PTSD in these people, and then they are deported because of the effects, the ramifications of that, you know. Um, And so it's like, yeah, technically, they might have a crime against them. But it's like, well, what's the root cause of the situation? You know, and how much so a few minutes into the short film, I was wanting a little more details on each individual's like specific case to have a firm basis for you know, connecting to them and understanding their whole story was the lack of detail, especially in like Freddie's case, was the lack of detail more a product of the constraints of the short film or is it a deliberate choice to more focus on the emotion and um, results of the outcome of that case rather than focusing on the case itself? I think it's a little bit of everything yeah. that you pointed out. Yeah. I mean, in thir- we, we were really trying to make it like around 13 minutes long. Mm-hmm. And when you have that small amount of time, it's just, just too difficult to, to really get all of those details in um, that we wanted. There's so many things that we left out, like the, the uh, Marine vet, for instance, he told us harrowing stories about when he arrived back from uh, the United States and um, how he was almost put into the cartels and, you know, like they, they, arrived at his bus that that, um, came in from the United States. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but, and yeah, there's just, and and also the way that they tell their story sometimes when you're interviewing them, it can be, it's very difficult to like, in editing, come up with a really efficient way of having it make sense. Like it's just, their stories can be very complicated, you know? And so you're trying to like get to the gist of like, well, this is really what this is about, you know? And so you have to make some decisions where you don't, cover every nuance of it because there just isn't the time and 
Is this it a storyline do you think could uh, be extended into some kind of full series or uh, feature length documentary? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what originally we were hoping for, that we could do something that was a longer format that could really encompass more stories. Um, and in particular, focus a lot on the, um, the women in the organization because all of them have very interesting stories and they're all very, very, very different, you know? Um, and I think especially with the three people that we chose, it was kind of about figuring out um, stories that you don't really hear about for deportation. So whether that's the veteran, whether that's somebody who is a student trying to do the right thing and they're trying to fix their status and just didn't understand the rules at the time, or, you know, all those little nuances that make you understand that the laws that we have in place don't really make sense all of the time. Um, nobody, I don't think anybody's saying there shouldn't be any laws, but you know, it should at least be understandable for most people. Um, so if we had a longer time, I think we could really encompass more of those sort of stories. Yeah, would it, yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh yeah, I mean, I was just gonna say it would have been really helpful to ha uh, give actual factual information so people could understand what's, why the system is broken and in what exact ways in which, like say Freddie, for instance, why he can't see his kids and how there just isn't, when people say, why doesn't he just get in line, you know, and go the, you know, do it the right way. And you're like, well, there is no right way because it doesn't exist for someone in his particular case. Yeah. Like because he came here on a whim as a kid and he was just like, thought it would be fun to come to the U.S. And then he realized he built an entire life here and then he tries to do the right thing. And he realizes actually because I broke this rule that I didn't even know about on a whim, I have no ability to uh, be to with my family yeah, to fix the situation. There's no legal route for it, you know? Right. And yeah. So. I, this would be literally there wouldn't have been a better time to release something like this because more and more people every day are realizing how broken our different systems are. And just this issue touches the military, touches uh, childcare, healthcare, and you know, there's just so many things that need to be fixed, mm -hmm. you know, and the discussion won't happen unless everyone yeah, realizes, realizes the different parts truly understands the problem it's and insane. then can have a discussion about it with, and not enough people yeah. i think with esmeralda she so she went from america back to mexico and was trying to get her student visa so those that's one of those things where like it's supposed to be a clear path it's supposed to be understandable and then it was like eight it had been eight years and she yeah. had just kind of given up on it. And she had taken a path to become a lawyer in Mexico and was working on immigration things. And mm -hmm. so that was a really cool arc of her taking a really, really bad situation and, and mm -hmm. becoming something that can hopefully help. What was it like talking and discovering that story with her? Um, Esmeralda is amazing, honestly. She's really... Um... Yeah, she's a really inspiring girl. Um, she fights for a lot of different causes. Um, and uh, getting to know her was kind of great. She actually works now with the organization. So um, she has a really integral part in helping people kind of reestablish lives back in Mexico now. Um, so she was actually one of the first people that kind of said, yeah, I'll do this. Like, I'm super excited to do it. Um, yeah. And she was also one of the ones that because she'd established a life there already, she gave us a lot more access, like, you know, to her friends, to her house, to, you know, um, to, you know, the protests that she was going to, all these sort of things. 
Um, but her story, yeah, is very, um, yeah, it's very crazy because she really did. She, when she came over, it was, she was just a child. She, um, I think she was eight years old at the time. And she vaguely remembers it. She remembers walking through deserts. She remembers, you know, having to wear a diaper as an eight-year-old because they didn't know where they could go to the bathroom. Um, and then she spent most of her life in the United States and she became valedictorian. She was like very on top of like wanted to go to the best schools, all of this. Um, and she had a scholarship, a full-time scholarship to go to college. But what ended up happening is uh, she was told that you need a bank account in order for the scholarship to go through. And it was like technical details. So she thought, okay, I'll pack my bags. I'll go back to Mexico, visit my family for the summer and then come back for college. Didn't understand that this law where you'll be banned for 10 years, even if you're a child that came and didn't have, you know, the ability to say yes or no, I want to break the law. Um, you're still bound by that law. So as soon as she went and crossed back over to the border, it shuts essentially. For um, 10 years? For yeah. 10 years. So even now she has trouble, like she's been there for nine years. She's been trying to apply for a visa just to come here, not to live, um, but to just visit her nephews that she's never seen before, yeah. family that's still in the United States. And um, there's a lot of issues, like there's a lot of issues with the American side, but there is a lot of issues with the Mexican side as well. Um, and they have their own sort of racist agenda themselves. Um, and so for someone like her, it becomes a lot more difficult to get a visa now. Um, so yeah, again, it's all the technicalities of each system working together. Yeah. She came over in like 2011 or she came, she tried to come back to Mexico and return and around that time yeah i believe so so it was before daca she like it was right after that that daca kind of was established or she she basically missed the deadline just <laughs> she's, I, my age. she's a year young she's a year older than me okay that's insane that's uh, no but like and, and it was interesting like you 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 showed that you know she obviously has kind of created this life she has friends like she seems to be happy but then it was this dichotomy of where freddie was alone and you know his family was back in in the united states did you guys mean to kind of have those two contrasting you know stories back to back to kind of show what can happen either way yeah yeah absolutely it was and that that was those contrasts were like built in the editing room in a way you know like we obviously tried to find people with different stories that would contrast each other but really trying to like drive that point home in like meaningful ways was a very like difficult long process while editing. Um, uh, and um, yeah, I mean, Fred, it was also, con we also were interested in contrasting the, the time frames that people had been back. So Freddie was back only a month at the time that we met him. And so all of his emotions were super raw, you know, and he was just, and he had been in prison, um, for like a couple months in, in, in different forms of jail because he was fighting for the right to stay with his family in the United States. And he could have at any moment been like, okay, I'm just gonna go to Mexico and get out of jail. But because he was trying to fight things the legal way, he ended up having the most harrowing experience in, in our prison system and he, that he opened up to us about afterwards. And I mean, it's just one, it deserves an entire documentary, documentary unto itself that that experience of just trying to do things legally correctly and um being forced to be around all these 
Yeah, I mean, just imagine every worst case story you've ever heard about prison, and that's what it was like. Yeah. Was he going through the uh, federal or state system? Through the federal system, yeah. And his also <laughs> is like another kind of, um, you know, uh, strange path that they take in order for deportation. Like the original story, and we couldn't really fit it into here, but um, he's done other interviews since then, um, where the reason why he was caught was um, he had a fight with his wife and a neighbor called the cops. Because of that, he was then put onto a system. But he went through the court system. He went to court, he spoke to the judge. Uh, his wife said it wasn't, you know, there wasn't an issue. He went through anger management courses for months. He did everything that, you know, legally you, you should do. Yeah. And by the end of the system, when he was just about to go back to the judge and the judge said, oh, we're going to like, you know, get rid of the charges. It's going to be fine. You've done all of your you know, mandatory things. Um, he showed up, parked his car and immediately had people surround his car and ask, are you ready? And then just took him in. Yeah. I, so, so they were ICE agents that showed yeah. up. Yeah. So ICE last... agents target small courts for yeah. any sort of like like small little misdemeanors, whatever it is, parking tickets. I've even seen like they'll like fakely schedule a docket just so they can bring the person into the courthouse to so an ICE agent can come and get them. Yeah, like, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm not sure to what extent it was coordinated with uh, mm -hmm. the actual scheduling of that day. I just know that they have ICE agents that get access to all of that information and all of those names, and then they'll. It's just like a really easy way of like picking people up. Yeah. yeah. So he like never said goodbye to his kids, basically. Like he didn't know he was what was happening. They didn't know. So he never got that even closure for that. Was his um wife like also an undocumented immigrant? So like she probably couldn't go back to Mexico to like take the kids. Yeah, she wouldn't be able to. Yeah. Well, I mean, the main issue with his story is the fact that his son is autistic. Yeah. So um, which I mean. I'm not sure how clearly that that's essentially the reason because he it's already difficult enough for his son to to cope and live in the United States with English as his first language now and then to have him be uprooted and brought back to Mexico would have been like he just feels like it's just too much for his son wouldn't make sense so even legally if they could be together in Mexico it it just that flight itself you, would be very stressful yeah that yeah. Jesus Huh. That's it's that's one of the craziest stories. But uh, the other, it's Aaron who's the veteran, right? Mm -hmm. Aaron's story. He he's talking about it. And you guys mentioned that Freddie was in jail for a while. Aaron said that he was in in a federal prison for a year. How in the hell are we putting veterans in federal <laughs> prisons for a year? Like I I I ask that just more like a what was the background of that? Like what was his story where he was in prison for that long? Well, that's kind tell of us the, he was just working through the court system, and that's yeah. no, um, no, not at all. Um, there's some that we can't really say. Like one of the reasons we had to blur him was because his case is still pending. Okay. So there's specifics that we're not allowed to really okay. say. Um, all I'll say is that um, he he was involved in a crime with some other people. Um, his take is that he didn't actually commit the crime. He just happened to be working for this company at the time. Um, okay. so going to federal prison, it was him fighting it for the longest time. And eventually he just said, you know, okay, I, I'm not, I can't do this anymore. I can't be in here anymore. And just was like, just deport me. Um, so yeah, that's kind of, it, it, yeah, it's a complicated story, but essentially he was made to take the fall for 
all some other stuff that was going on. That that's, and we should say allegedly because obviously we weren't there. We don't know, but yeah, this is his case and this is what his lawyers. I mean, are saying. and at the end of the day, regardless of the situation, it it it's like he he shouldn't have to be just like say, well, you're no longer our problem anymore. You know, you fought for us. Um, you know, you risked your life for us, and because you commit you may or may not have committed a crime. You're just not, we're just going to like get rid of you and remove you from our system completely and, and let you fend for yourself somewhere else. I, th I still think that it's just an injustice unto itself, you know, if that makes sense. Could you explain the process of de deportation? Because I'm sure we can look it up and find it, but for listeners, like as soon as the deportation order is finalized, like, what are the exact steps? Like, do they just drive them to the border and, and let them cross back into Mexico? Are they, like, flown into a major city of their choice and then just released back to Mexico? Um, it kind of depends. So um, if somebody commits a crime, they actually serve out their time in the United States for that crime, and then they'll be deported. Um, if it's just, like, some person who hasn't committed a crime, but, you know, they're just being picked up or something, um, it depends on their case. So sometimes some people will be just like driven to the border and they're just kind of let out. And that often happens with, especially with people who uh, are caught at the border or near the border or something like that, rather than going through a whole process, they just like throw them back. And so they can kind of come back and it's like a whole circle. Um, sometimes if possible, they do try to fly people to certain areas, but again, it's it's a case-by-case -case basis. Um, so not everybody gets that luxury. Sometimes they're kind of stuck in an area and then have to figure it out themselves. Um, it sounds like there's like very little uh, coordination between the U.S. and the Mexican government. It's like there's no handoff. It's just, here, you're back in Mexico. Have fun. Like Yeah, kind of. I mean, it's in a strange way. The Mexican government actually does work with the United States quite a bit with immigration. Um, they have a lot of their own issues with it. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's again, it's more, I think, that the United States doesn't want to have to deal with the problems. I mean, that's my guess. and I don't really know, but they just don't want to have to like deal with a long court thing or having to house people for months and months and months. Um, yeah. Kind of like what you're seeing at the border now with those cages, you know. Right. Yeah. So that's a whole nother, <laughs> yeah. whole nother part yeah. of it to talk about. That's even worse than some of the stuff that I can even imagine. It's kind pretty of, bad. Yeah. Um, I mean, do you guys think it's possible for true reform with immigration? Like, in the future over the next year two years like what's um, moving forward yeah i don't know in the next two years or anything because they have been fighting it for decades and nothing seems to be done i feel like politicians are really good at like saying the thing that people want to hear but not actually implementing the the rules in a way that work um but i mean i'm hopeful and i do kind of think that the world is we're much more of like a global society. And I think at a certain point, we are going to have to start thinking more about what that means and what these, these lines, these arbitrary lines that we kind of create are going to mean, you know, because we just, we're so integral with so many parts of the world. We depend on Mexico for so many things in our country. I mean, at a certain point, there's going to have to be some, some workaround or some, you know, compromise between countries. Yeah. yeah, I'm very hopeful. I mean, I think it's definitely possible. I, it's obviously not possible with the current administration. I mean, it, it, which feels 
very much built on this narrative of trying to, you know, really demonize other people from other countries, you know, um, and if that's the basis for his political appeal, then it's going to be, there's just no reason for him to do anything about it or his administration. But, uh, if, if things do change, you know, politically, I think that absolutely there's so much more interest in this topic. Many more people are far more educated about it and wanting to do something about it um, than I can ever remember, you know. So um, I am hopeful, but, you know, it depends. Yeah. <laughs> it is unfortunate. Like, it, we were watching it the other day, and at the end of it, we were like, well, you know, we haven't talked about immigration in forever, right? Yeah, and, like the only thing anyone's talking about is surviving a pandemic like and yeah. everything is going to be put on hold until who knows that doesn't, when... that doesn't let people off the hook about no absolutely not i'm just subject. saying that, like you people, need to have this discussion people about are suffering right now yeah. and like it's it's super unfortunate that everything's just kind of frozen in time until but i think the, in- the mm-hmm. interesting thing that y'all were kind of talking about you know People like like what this current administration is doing is they demonize these people by saying that they're criminals for even just being here. I think the biggest part of you know the the discussion that needs to be changed is these people aren't criminals. Like they're trying to come here for a better life, and so to kind of take that narrative and change it. Yeah. And I think this does a really good job of that because you show these people in a light where it's like they're not criminals. Like one's a veteran who was trying to come and help our country. One has a family and one was a student like these aren't criminals in the you know the very basic sense and so i think that this is a great way to change that conversation yeah yeah thank you um yeah it was really we really wanted to just humanize these people so um and i just you know i think back to the stories about the caravans coming you know um in the news and as if they were some kind of military operation and you're just like, these are people that are just yeah. desperately trying to make their lives better. I don't know how you could not sympathize with them and they're risking their lives and walking on foot for thousands of miles. You're just like, how could you possibly be afraid of these people that are that desperate to make their lives better? <laughs> you know? So. Yeah. Um, and I, think, I think also just the people, especially that we got to meet and interview a lot of them, just felt like my family members in Texas, like they felt very American. And just to point out, like Mm -hmm. um, the organizations around Thanksgiving, they actually celebrate it in Mexico. Mm -hmm. They have a whole thing, they bring out a turkey, you know, like they're very American. They very much lived here for such a long time. And still like uh, Maggie, who's one of the uh, co-founders of the organization we work with, um, she lived in Georgia for a bit. And I mean, she still listens to country music. She still considers herself kind of this like mix between the two. Like she's not Mexican and she's not really American. She's just this ambiguous figure in the middle. So, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, what are you guys going to be working on in the future? You got any other projects that are coming up or anything you want to promote? <laughs> yeah, we're still early stages for the next project, but there's a documentary I want to make, a feature documentary um, having to do with Amazon. Um, and cool. Yeah. And the people who there's all these people who like run around the country trying to find things to sell through Amazon and they go to all these like dying stores in America, you know, like the ones that, you know, all these bankrupt stores and they find products that are, that just happen to sell for a lot of money, um, online randomly. And they try to, so they're just kind of like nomadically going across the country. That's Yeah. So it's like a weird dichotomy between like, 
all the brick and mortar stores dying and like Amazon, you know, uh, taking over like a vulture. Yeah. yeah, And these people who are the the people doing it and their interest, their weird life. So yeah, I'd like to make, that's the next project. Hopefully. Yeah. (laughs) Very different from this, but this is for for Amazon or just about Amazon? About Amazon. Okay. This isn't okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't need to prove. Yeah, that'd be really ballsy for Amazon just to come out of nowhere and be like, "Hey, this is what we're doing. Like, we're like literally just vulturing." Sorry, different stores. Neighborhoods. Yeah. yeah, like we're going in and thrift shopping at places that are closing down. That's yeah. that's, that's insane. Funny. I didn't know people did that. Oh yeah, I mean, what the shit? People make good money, <laughs> goodwill stuff, and selling it online. So oh, okay, that's yeah. But what's cool about this is like they have like they find the most arbitrary things. Like it'll be like Game of Thrones Oreos or something like that, you yeah. know, or, yeah. or like some tie like Tide Pods from like two thousand and two, you know, like this yeah. one particular. It's like. And they'll go for like a couple hundred bucks or whatever. <laughs> and you're just like, what? <laughs> I guess they're gourmet Tide Pods. So no, there's, just, <laughs> there's just, like, crazy people out there that will buy all yeah. this random yeah, shit. Yeah, I guess. You got them. America, man. Jesus. <laughs> but we'll definitely, we'll be looking out for that one. Um, do you think you'll, you'll film that sometime this year or next year? Like, Yeah, when things open up, you know. Yeah, right? maybe, that would everything gets on hold, so. Yeah. If, someone, yeah. if someone came to y'all after seeing the short film and was like, we want you to do 10 episodes for Netflix, is that something y'all, y'all would yeah. take on? Absolutely, Absolutely yeah. Right, I mean, it's such an important subject. We'd love to do that. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Time to spam Netflix, boys. Let's go. Because <laughs> <laughs> this is like, this is like, legitimately, this is something that people need to watch and talk about. And I think there needs to be more yeah. of this because the discussion is something that we should all be having. So yeah, it's awesome. And you guys... Mm-hmm. We really appreciate you guys taking the time and uh, talking with us. And are there any uh, groups you want to shout out if people are interested in um, yeah checking out yeah redoing research or somehow getting involved and in, you know trying to push this issue? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, okay, so <laughs> there's United Veterans that's in Tijuana. They're really great. Um, they also, like I said, they work with a prayer group on the border. So every Sunday, if you're ever interested. It's um, Muslims, Christians coming to the border, praying together. It's a really beautiful scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something you can easily take part in. Um, and you can very quickly meet a lot of people. If anyone's in that area and they want to get involved, there's so many wonderful people doing incredible work, oh, connected yeah. with all other organizations working to help deportees and immigrants. Yeah, um, yeah it's a really powerful scene there in Tijuana. Yeah. And then Oda, um, the Otros Turings Nacion, they're on our website, um, but you can go to them and actually I think both of these organizations are on our website, um, but you can go to them, you can volunteer, they're looking for volunteer graphic designers or if you live in Mexico City, they're looking for volunteers there. They're also looking to expand because Mexico City's just one area, um, and they want to be able to help people that are in more isolated areas in Mexico. So if you are in Mexico, you can try to help establish something like that with them. We'll definitely link all that on our website and have people go check that out. And we'll definitely have to go out and do the the prayers. So we really appreciate you guys taking the time. We're excited. If you're in the Texas area or anywhere in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, when you're checking out Amazon Nomads, hit us up. (laughs) <laughs> you know, we'd love to chat more and we really appreciate you guys taking the time today thank yeah, you so much for having us yeah, yeah really excited thank you yeah. you guys have a great day yeah you, you too, too. Bye. just want to thank monica and eric one more time for coming on and talking to us we really uh, enjoyed the conversation with them so thank y'all 
And now it is time for our interview with uh, the director of Cannonball, Sean Fredericks. And here he is. We are now joined by the director of the short film Cannonball, which actually won uh, Best Crime Comedy at the Manhattan Film Festival, Best Short at the Soho International Film Festival, and Best Comedy Short at the Independent End Edmonton Independent Film Festival, and is currently at the Dead Center Film Festival. Go check it out, deadcenterfilm.org. It is Sean Fredericks. Thank you for joining us, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, you're on the West Coast. What's, what's it been like these last couple months just through all this crazy nutness? Yeah, it's been, I mean, it's been pretty locked down. We, we had a lockdown, not that everybody was uh, uh, adhering to it, but uh, yeah, it's yeah. slowed down a lot. Um, it's pretty dead, but I think people are trying to uh, stay productive and write and create more scripts. Yep. So uh, yeah, that's, that's definitely what I've, been, what I've been working on. And I mean, I've been asking people that have been involved in, been involved with Dead Center this last week, you know, what it's been like to go through a kind of virtual film festival. It's obviously a very different experience, but how different is it for people who really have never been to a film festival to do this all online? Well, uh, I, one of the things that's great about a live film festival is you get to see the audience's reaction. Yeah. You get to meet people uh, here. And I think people a lot more open, especially right after they've seen something. If they say, oh, you, you just, uh, you did the thing that I, you're part of the thing that I just saw or experienced. Yeah. That's fun. Um, Cannonball's, you know, a dark comedy. So hearing people laugh or hearing people get a little uh, uh, freaked out when they, when they uh, think something's going to happen. That's fun to hear. Um, so you'd miss that a little bit, but I will say that Dead Center has like been amazing, far exceeded my, my expectations. I've been able to meet a lot of filmmakers on Zoom um, and distributors, and, and they've really done a, an amazing job. No, and they have a whole slate of stuff that's been really, really fun to watch and great content. And this is definitely one of one of the best short films. It's just crazy. Like, it's really funny. Where did Thank this you. idea kind of come from? Because it's a very unique, like, <laughs> in a truck, two characters just kind of going at it. Um, so my co-writer, Simon, originally came up with the idea. And then I was, this is my first film. So I was like thinking through some of the scripts we had written together. And I was like, all right, I want to move into directing. Tired of waiting around screenwriting, <laughs> waiting for other people to, to yeah. direct something. So I said, all right, let's let me think of what we've come up with. And I knew he had the script. So I kind of then got involved and and we shaped it together. Uh, and uh, it was just something that I knew I could shoot. And we tried to make the best thing we could. Uh, shot it in two days. I thought it would be easy. It was, in fact, insanely hard. <laughs> um, so we were dealing, you know, it was outside, it was in the desert. It was 110 degrees. Uh, I was in a truck. 70s truck, so 1971 Ford. So we were uh, the AC was a tough issue, but we yeah. we made it through. So was this um, like completely an original story? Was there any like inspiration for it from reality? Um, I think Simon had once met a guy that reminded him of Deuce, and he's just okay. like, "That's an interesting character." Uh, I don't think the guy was a hitman, obviously, but I think um, uh, his manner, his uh, his thoughtfulness, the way he like really you know, thinks through problems and maybe they're too big for him to think through. <laughs> and uh, he just, he wrote this character and then kind of shaped things um, as the plot, as, as it kind of grew and grew um, in terms of the backstory and the more we, the deeper we went, the more subtle the characters got. And so, um, but yeah, he had come up with that original kind of premise of a, of a woman hiring a hitman for her abusive husband and just went from there. Where did y'all um, film it? What? Yeah, so we uh, we shot it uh, about 30 minutes past Palm Springs, so it is truly okay. desert. 
desert it's area. Like in California somewhere. Yeah, it's called Indio, California. Okay, yeah. Um, cool. Okay. So I didn't know there was, was like that kind of landscape out there. It looked like Arizona or something like that. Yeah. Um, it's it's pretty barren. Yeah, and it's uh, obviously this is like a Breaking Bad type feel, I think, uh, with with Deuce especially, and and yeah, there was a there was a trailer, a Breaking Bad trailer out there, and um, seriously, yeah, yeah, uh, there were two guys who when we were so the truck had broken down at one point where we had the the big wide shots uh, where you see all you know the scope of the desert, mm-hmm. um, and the truck had broken down, and and yeah, uh, two guys had come up with guns to another part of the set and we had to race back and kind of chase them away and it was, Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> it was like a uh, fiction i don't know what were we in that world the, the yeah. world of, of film or, or real life it was kind of <laughs> weird but uh yeah we we made do and uh but it, it felt authentic to put it <laughs> to put it mildly that's yeah. pretty crazy wow yeah. in the trailer like darla and in, in the movie she pops out what basically looks like a buzz ball and just starts pounding them back with anxiety medicine. Yeah, with anxiety medicine. Where, like, what did that come from? And, and in my head, I immediately, I don't know if you know what buzz balls are, but they're like super high ATV, like ABV, yeah. and they're supposed to be known to get you real drunk. So in my head, I was really? like, holy shit, she's me- just popping anxiety pills with like really hardcore like alcohol right now. It reminded me of Homeland. Like that was kind of uh, her. Yeah. <laughs> She was just taking antidepressants with like large amounts of alcohol and working for the CIA. She's definitely self-medicating. Um, yeah. You know, that's she wouldn't be in that position with Deuce and hiring him unless she uh, she felt like she was at her at her wit's end. Um, and uh, but I yeah, the, the, what it, I came up with that because I there was a local grocery store and I was walking by and I knew the, the owner of the grocery store. I said, "What are these?" And he's like, "Oh." These are these wine bottles. Yeah. He's like, and they just pop them off. And he's like, to be honest, we do have some of the, some of the soccer moms come here and they, they pop these things off, throw them in their purse. So people think they're juice. And I was like, Oh, I'm using that one day. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> so, thing. So, uh, that is so, a good yeah. way to like highlight her like boomer status almost like definitely. Yeah. <laughs> but it, I thought the image of pulling the, all of them out um, was yeah. She had three. Yeah, yeah. She had no time for one. That's, that's not how she rolls. Yeah. So when her purse is big enough that she can just roll around with four like wine juice packs <laughs> at any yeah. given time. Yeah, yeah she's like, a mom. She's got you know she's got to be prepared. So beginning of the day, she's like, I'm gonna go hire a hitman today. What am I gonna need in my purse? So four, of course, four and some antidepressants. So. That sounds very yeah. Some baby wipes, you know. Yeah, you know, hey, that's what she does. So, yeah. What these two act the actor and actress that you, you know, got to play Deuce and Darla. Yeah. Was that something that you knew that those were the two people you wanted or was there a process to find those two cuz these two are are perfect for those roles. They're they're awesome. Yeah, I couldn't work with two better actors who are more committed, who who like the material and um and who fit the role so well. Yeah. I uh so I was asking my producer and and partner Amber um I said, do you know, can you ask your acting studio, do you know anybody who could fit Deuce? Because I feel like I'm going to have a really tough time casting him. Very specific. Um, Yeah, he's got to be big. He's got to be believably, you know, this kind of character. Um, And she, so she asked one person and the guy was like, I know one guy, I think. (laughs) So they put me in touch and I met him and we were in Beverly Hills, you know, and I, I met him for coffee and I met, as soon as I saw him waiting there, I was like, that's the guy. <laughs> There's yeah. just no way. Yeah. He fit it perfectly. Um, and, and then he just worked so hard to, to, 
really make it come to life. And so Trevor was, was awesome. Um, and then uh, MJ who plays Darla. Uh, we actually, I did have somebody in mind and then mm-hmm. she got booked on something else. So we actually had to recast the role um, rather last minute. So I think she only had about a, a week, week and a half to prep. Um, so she, she was a monster. She just uh, rehearsed and really committed and uh, yeah, couldn't be happier. So, and they were great on set. They were both troopers. They were tough conditions. And, yeah. You know, they're, they're true artists. So. And spoiler for this next part, but there's that scene where they're in the truck and she like shows in the picture of her husband and Deuce all of a sudden realizes like, holy shit, I've been hired by like the same couple. What was right. that scene like to film where the, the, the whole short film changes? Um, it was, it was definitely, I mean, you know, we had scripted it and really thought about it a lot. So uh, it was calibrated, you know, even, even Deuce's like hemming and hawing when he sees it as he tries to figure out, cause for him, his whole world just changed too. And this has never happened to him and he's doing this a long time and he's good at it cause he's still not in jail, you know? So that he, uh, yeah. So, so this is something that throws him for a loop too. So they're both thrown in this situation. Uh, so we had really tried to calibrate that from the script. But I wanted it to have that organic feel. So, um, so the picture actually uh, of of Darla's husband, um, Gary, is Trevor's friend. But Trevor didn't know it was going to be his. It's one of his best friends. Oh wow! So I, I had secretly contacted him and like done all this whole photo shoot. <laughs> Trevor had no idea. He thought it was going to be me in the picture. And um, so amazing. when we. And I almost didn't get it on camera because uh, we were on her when we were first doing the scene on her coverage. And uh, right as he, she was about to hand him the picture because they were doing like eight minute takes. I just, they had it so rehearsed. I was like, let's just go see how long you guys can go. That's so so cool. she's about to hand him the photo. I was like, well, God, hold on. <laughs> yeah, no, we got it. hundred <laughs> percent. Flip the camera around because yeah. we were going to be on her when he first sees it. And I was like, no, I want to get his original reaction. And that is the cut. That, that's the take we actually used. That's was the one. Nice of his when he first saw it so yeah that's a really good idea to just have that moment of like he has no clue like really what he's about to see like he's thinking one thing and then all of a sudden it's just like something he completely knows yeah anything low. you can do to get like a genuine reaction yeah. like what yeah. the fuck <laughs> yeah just totally taken you know he the actor was taken at, you know for surprise so we got that on, i think we got that on camera and, and he yeah. he was smart enough he's such a good actor that he was I could tell out of those watching him, he, he was out of it. And then, you know, he's such a smart actor that he was like, I know exactly what this was supposed to do to me and I'm going to just keep going. And he just kept yeah. going and we kept it and it was great. So, um, yeah, no, Trevor, Trevor was great in that. And, and he won an award at one of the film festivals that you guys were at. Yeah, he won, he won for Best Actor at Portland Comedy Film Fest and he won another uh, award at USA Film Fest. So we were nominated there and then he won for for um, performance award. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, yeah, he, he's killing it. I'd be, I'd be surprised if you guys weren't up for something here at, at Dead Center. So you guys will find out Saturday. I hope so, yeah. I mean, it'd be, it'd be awesome. And um, sad I can't be there in person, but. Uh, I think we're hoping we'll get up there for it. We'll Hopefully. See. Do you have any um, other, like, film festivals this is going to be shown in? Um, well, right now, we, we, we got into a few, but right now they're on hold and they're still waiting to see yeah. kind of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, we were going to possibly do a digital release this summer, um, put it on Vimeo and, and go out to a wider audience. Uh, we're still 
we're still planning that strategy just because everything's a little bit odd right now. But, um, but I know uh, if people want to find out more about the film, uh, cannonballthefilm.com. All of our info is there. All of our festivals, uh, screening info, tickets, everything's there. Uh, we're also on Instagram, uh, Cannonball the Film, and uh, on Twitter, Cannonball Short. So, so we're there. Nice. Cool. Um, with how the movie kind of wraps up with him, she, spoiler, she dies. Shit. Um, what was it kind of the message that you were trying to send that, you know, the world or, you know, the universe ha- is like an unstoppable force. And if you put something into motion, it's inevitably going to happen one way or another. And that was kind of forced upon him. What was kind of the idea behind that whole message? Yeah, I think, um, I don't know that it's a fully figured out idea. I think it's more a feeling where we can feel like, a few things. One, we can feel like everything we're doing is so significant in the moment and it's not, you know, in the grand scheme of things it is, but it isn't right. Like it is because we affect things, you know, one decision can affect it's kind of butterfly effect thing. Um, or final destination was, is his version of that. Right. Um, he but, started talking about final destination and I got flashbacks. I was like, I am <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. My favorite line in there is like, a girl got, dies in a tanning booth, right? That's no yeah. way to go, right? Yeah. <laughs> so he's yeah. so he's so horrified by the, the immorality of the, of the universe. Um, but I think, you know, one thing we were doing was it's very claustrophobic sometimes in the car. And then we cut out to this huge desert landscape. And it's, you know, we're small. And yet our lives are significant to us in that moment. Um, and how does the universe, where do we fit in the universe? You know, does it care? Maybe it cares a lot. Maybe it doesn't. Um, and I think we're always going back and forth between those two feelings. So that was kind of the feeling I wanted to capture more than I guess a moral, um, was just that to, to, to know the sadness of that she dies. And it's like, well, she kind of did set this thing in motion, but I kind of wanted her not to, you know, so, um, we wanted you to, to be conf- feel conflicted at the end. No, for sure. And, it was yeah it was like a cool way you utilize the philosophy because like uh his character you could almost say like oh he's just like you know kind of like a west coast hippie like maybe did too many drugs or something but then like the story itself like solidifies his uh his like worldview right like the everything the universe like fixed it like fixed the problem for him and like by the end of the story you're like oh this guy knows exactly what he's talking about and well uh, it's like he almost he almost wanted to change his course like he wanted to change the way that he was leading his life by doing something that could help animals but then it was like the light then like the universe was just basically saying like no bro like you're a hitman and he had that moment of realization where it was like yeah so i'm gonna keep doing this shit and just like went full bore with it that last scene is so cool Thanks. Uh, we so we filmed it. We filmed it multiple ways. Actually, we filmed it where right. he where he gives it up and he decides not to do it. And then we filmed it um, obviously the way it was originally scripted, which is what we kept. Mm-hmm. But we did. I, I gave Trevor uh, or Deuce. Uh, I gave them. I feel like the option um, and to at least like let's see what that looks like. Let's watch it. You know, let's see how we feel at the end and what do we what feels most right. You know. Um, <clears throat> and he, you know, he did set his own life in motion that way. So, uh, but he does, he does one thing, right. Where he switches the order of the rules. I don't know if you caught that. But he, yeah, no, no. Uh, he, he definitely starts to like kind of reorder how everything is going to be. 
for, for yeah, he's not going to make this mistake again. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's tragic, but I think it's kind of darkly comic and we can, we can relate to that sometimes because life is kind of a mix of both. Right. Yeah. Um, as we're, we're seeing right now, you know, everything's kind of a mix of both. Yeah. Yep. And life is nuts right now. <laughs> but are you going to be, I mean, whenever you kind of wrap up with cannonball, what's your, your, your next project? Like you said that you wanted to direct and this yeah, is a short film. What do you, what do you got plans for the future? Thanks. Um, so I've been screenwriting for about 10 years. So um, there are a lot of uh, full length uh, features and, and pilots as well um, that uh, are moving. I mean, everything's a little slow right now, but we're, we're moving some of them. Uh, and then I got to figure out what I want to do for the next uh, full full project. Uh, I was planning on shooting a short this summer, uh, another short, uh, but you know we're kind of putting that off for now. So. That ain't happening. We're in a, we're in a holding pattern, but I'm just uh, just developing more material as, as much as I can so that um, maybe I'll shoot a few projects simultaneously as soon as as soon as it's safe to do so. Cool. Well, hey man, we're we're super stoked to see what you do in the future and Cannonball. Thank you. Awesome. Everybody needs to go check it out at deadcenterfilm.org and. Hopefully it'll yeah. Hopefully get some awards well this weekend. Get some some awards on Saturday. We'll definitely update people on that. And thank you guys. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I'm really uh, really happy you guys enjoyed it. And uh, happy to be a dead center. And yeah, yeah, we'll be reaching out for you to to see what what you guys want and see what the reaction is to it. So uh, cool. Yeah. We'll uh, fingers crossed. <laughs> All right, man. Well, hey, thank you for taking the time to speak with us. And uh, all right, we'll talk in the future. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. You have a great day. Bye. Thanks. You too. And that was our interview with Sean Fredericks, the director of Cannonball. Again, want to thank him for uh, coming on. Thank you to Monica and Eric. And uh, everybody check out our website, furloughedfilmtalks.net. Check us out on Instagram, furloughedfilmtalks, and on Twitter, furloughedfilm. Uh, give us a like. Give us you know a follow. Uh, check out all of our different guest announcements. Like uh, we are going to have Eugene Cordero from Tacoma FD on Friday and also Gregory Allen Williams uh, who's a first-time director of Birdie which is at the for our uh, at the Dead Center Film Festival and he is also in uh, Remember the Titans and a whole slew of just different movies and TV shows he's uh, really done a lot so we're really excited to talk to him uh, and we are also gonna actually gonna have a special Thursday episode with our interview with Kate Nallen from The Hunt and also uh, haven't announced it yet, but we are going to also have the director of Bastards Road and the subject of Bastards Road, which is at the Dead Center Film Festival and was a uh, winner at the Santa Barbara International Film Festival. So we're going to have John Hancock and uh, Brian Morrison on with us. So super excited to put that out tomorrow. But thank you guys for listening to this episode and everybody uh, have a great day.